Oh my god. Ew. Dermatage should start patterns last season. Be original, you stupid bitch. <laughs> What are you, Betsy Ross or something? <laughs> you have no ideas. That page is blankety blank. <laughs> oh, your friend hates you, by the way. <coughs> she hasn't texted you since drinks last Thursday. Shut up! She would tell me. It's called ghosting, bitch. <laughs> I know. You should quit your job and lose all your friends before Christian realizes what a sad sack of talentless piece of shit you are. <laughs> quit your job, lose your friends, throw your stupid blanket in the trash, and then kill yourself. Do it, bitch. Do it quick now. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for Thursday, August. Let me get that date up here. Third. I can't believe we're in August already. Um, like, oh, no, I'm here August, with. But... <laughs> well, today we're yeah. recording on a Sunday. We're recording on July 30th, August. Sunday morning, drinking coffee. I'm here. It's Gigi Hawkins here. I'm here with. Yara Altunin, our our tech editor, and we're here with a guest today, editor Alex Familian. Welcome, Alex. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome Thanks for on. joining us for coffee on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Cheers. Well, we are speaking with Alex today. Alex is an editor of the body horror comedy question mark appendage, which we'll be digging into on Hulu. The film follows Hannah, a young fashion designer who seems fine on the surface, but secretly struggles with debilitating self-doubt. But soon these buried feelings begin to make Hannah physically sick and they actually sprout into a ferocious, grotesque growth on her body with a face, the appendage. So as Hannah's health declines, the appendage grows more powerful and begins to fuel her anxieties. Her perceived lack of talent at work, her deteriorating relationship with her boyfriend and her best friend and her parents' lack of love and understanding. And at a breaking point, Hannah makes a shocking discovery about her appendage, which you'll have to watch when the film comes out. And we're also going to discuss Alex's journey as an editor, how you came to the film, how you got your start editing. And then we're going to dig a little bit more into the VFX world, going into how you edit for VFX, but also how you shoot for VFX based off of this awesome article that Yaro wrote this week. And before we get into all of that, one thing that was very interesting in, in scheduling this interview, Alex, and the reason that we're doing it on a Sunday is... Because of the strikes that are happening, obviously SAG and the WGA are on strike, if you aren't aware, our listeners, I'm sure you are, your post-production schedule changed and you have been working insane hours. I mean, it's probably normal working hours, but yeah, so I'd love to hear a little bit about how the strikes have impacted you in the post-world. Yes, totally. So the strike has been really interesting. I'm I'm currently cutting a film that got shut down from the strike, the SAG strike, because they're still filming and I was editing while they're still filming. Um, and they still had like a week left to film and the strike basically shut them down and there's no coming back until the strike is over. So yeah, it's a little crazy. I'm basically, 
you know, putting together a cut of the film with 25% of the movie missing. So that's kind of a strange occurrence. You know, I think the, the positive is, you know, we get to kind of see, oh, maybe there's something we want to pick up after the strike is over. We kind of get like a breather. So that's kind of cool. Obviously, you know, I'm a big supporter of the strike and I, I want SAG and WGA to get, you know, what they're asking for. It's like completely reasonable what they're asking for. But yeah, it's definitely made the industry freak out a bit. And I think a lot of people were not expecting the SAG strike to happen. And, and I think like Fran's speech, I think really emboldened everybody to be like, no, we're doing this. <laughs> so that's so that's pretty sweet. Cool. Well, thank you for the update from the front lines of Of course. The- and you know, as an editor, I would, you know, it's it's really beneficial. And you know, as cinematographers as well, like, you know, we're not stuck to necessarily the film industry. Like I think branded content, commercials, things like that are still obviously okay. And so, you know, I a lot of my friends who I've been talking to who are also like department heads and stuff like that, like you can kind of like, you know, make a living right now doing commercials and stuff like that in this, in this, in this crazy time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's such a, a, a recurring thing that we see people who are working in narrative, having to be able to flex into commercial branded content, et cetera, to survive, because that is kind of the only way take that with whatever, you know, just an observation, but um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There are some opportunities yeah, for, uh, for some people. It's not like actors who are like, Oh, you can't act at all. I guess you could do stage as an actor. That's still available for some folks. I think, yeah, I think you can do stage and I think you can do commercials, but obviously commercials can be really hard to book and stuff. But, but I, I, I just took an improv class, which was, which was a really interesting oh. experience. It was fun. First improv and, class? Uh, first improv. Like I don't really do like any sort of, I've never been in front of the camera. Like I'm, I'm very like, I like being in my editing cave sort of thing. But my teacher was an, he's an actor and he was saying, that he's just, you know, he's just doing commercials now. What inspired you to take the improv class? I think just like, you know, second guessing myself a lot. And, you know, especially from the pandemic, I think just being shelled up in our house all the time. And now like things are kind of going back to normal and social situations and all this stuff. How do you and talk it was to just people? Like, yeah, exactly. It was just like a nice way to be like, oh, I can make a fool of myself and it doesn't really matter in, you know, I mean, you, you know, you want to be a nice person and stuff, but it's like a nice way to just like break out of your, your, uh, the anxiety cage in your, in your brain a little bit. Really? We don't play enough as grown adults. Like we don't just get out there and play. And that's what improv does. It like creates a space where we can just show up, play around, fuck around. Yes. And sometimes get really in our heads. I don't know if you've gotten to that point yet in your class, but then, and then you leave and it's like, there's no follow-up work. There's no, I mean, I, I actually took, started taking improv classes and did it for a long time in the Bay area and then in New York. And I think it taught me how to be okay with failing Mm -hmm. very openly and publicly. And in, of course, when you're learning, it's in a very safe space that's encouraging that, but it, it really tempered this fear of fail failure that I had and let me sort of embrace failing forward. And now I'm not a good improviser, but I love watching it. Like, I think I watch <laughs> improv like people watch sports. Oh, that's interesting. How, how are they figuring that out? That is like, they just cracked and yes ended that thing so hard and then paid it off with the game. Like, oh, it's so good. Yeah, it is. It is pretty wild. So, like great improv. I don't understand how people's brains work that fast. It's incredible. And be funny. 
And, yeah. you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. That's awesome. I had a friend who interviewed people on the red carpet and he's like, I, I don't know how to do this well. And so he took an improv class and got better and better and better, you know, and he's what well, working for, worked for, I don't know if I can say the company name, for a company that interviews celebrities on the red carpet. <laughs> and yeah, he, he did an improv class. I guess that's the, that's the moral I feel of the story. like improv would really help with that. Yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it did. I should take one. I had a pitch the other like two months ago last year and I like locked up. It was with like a sizable production company. I sat there and I went <gasps> and like I felt my throat close up and I was like, well, no. ooh. so I, I owned it and it <laughs> on. But man, that was tough. Well, you're already nailing it. You just yes-anded us so hard by saying, <laughs> yes, I should take an improv class. So you'll have to report back, Yarrow. I happen. I want to hear. <laughs> well, let's <laughs> let's email. pivot to talking about how Alex, you got your start as a storyteller. Obviously, you're an editor now. Were you always set on editing, and and what sort of sparked your interest in working in film? For sure, I've been making movies since I, you know, I mean, it's like the classic story. I feel like my dad had a, had a high eight camera, and I I picked it up and started making like very raunchy, ridiculous comedy movies with my friends in like middle school and high school and stuff like that. Mostly middle school, I would say. And then in high school, my 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 school had like a film class, and it was in LA, and so I was able to kind of like learn about film and, and how it all works. And then after I, I, w- I studied film in college and I, I like wanted to be an editor and then also wanted to be like a writer and director. And it's sort of like editing has always been like, that was my first sort of like passion. And then after college or during college, I got an internship with Joe Klutz. He's an editor. He did Precious and The Butler. And he's done a lot of Lee Daniels movies. He also cut the first season of Chappelle show, which is like, awesome and so i started assistant editing for him and i just really learned a lot and i've just been kind of i guess editing and doing and i started getting into vfx as well in college as like kind of a way to like make a living but also i found that it really helped as a director like you know you don't have to pay for vfx because most it's just so expensive so you can really like do a lot with with visual effects and even as an editor i mean just having that that toolbox which we can talk about is like really helpful but yeah, I just kind of got into it that way. And I had classmates that started hiring me to edit their movies or do visual effects on their movies. And then eventually I moved out to LA and kept working with people, editing things, doing a little bit of directing, all that stuff. And then I met my wife, Anna, who is a director. She directed Appendage and I edit most of her stuff. And so that's kind of the truncated version of how I, I got here. <laughs> We have a couple of husband and wife director editor teams that we're talking to in these next couple of weeks. How do you balance the work and life? Or is it just like you're always working on the movie and you're always like at the breakfast table? Yeah, it's it's been like a a working thing like that. I think we're still figuring out and I imagine every movie is going to be different. On this, you know, we only had seven weeks to lock appendage after after we wrapped production. So it oh was a really quick gosh. process. And so I think everything was sort of... And I was also a producer on the movie. And so we were, you know, from pre-production until we locked the movie. Even now, I mean, we're still like, you know, obviously really in it. But we figure it out. You know, I think it's... I don't know, man. It's, it's, a, it's a constant sort of, sort of uh, struggle. But I think... 
like, you know, we've tried writing together and I think that was difficult because like we're both writers and the, the positions of like how much work everybody is doing and everything is sort of like hard to define. But I think that the director, editor, like there's different tasks that we both have to accomplish. And so right. I can go off and do my editing thing and she goes off and does her directing thing. And I think that that those boundaries are like really helpful. Can you tell us about the film itself and sort of like how it came to be? For our listeners who haven't who haven't seen the film, it premiered at South by, correct? Yes, yes. And it's based on a short film that premiered at Sundance, uh, which we did through Hulu. So Anna, through her manager, got to pitch on this thing called Bite Size Halloween, which was done with this company called 20th Digital, who are no longer around, but they're sort of rebranded as a different company now. And she got her pitch for Bite Size and it was, they, she pitched three ideas. One of them was appendage and they wanted her to make appendage. And so we made that as a short film with them, which was really exciting. Cause I think it was like, we were just talking about how it was like our first like professional narrative endeavor. Like, you know, it's weird to get paid to like do, to do your thing, something. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still very bizarre. And so we made the short film, which was really fun. And then, the studio approached us to be like, Hey, like you want to make this into a feature. And I think at first we were like, these people, there's no way, like, this is like a lie. You know, I think we were just like a little jaded <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they were serious. And Anna wrote the script really, really quickly in like two months. And it was like this crazy window of like, let's try and get it into Sundance the next year or South by. And our like actresses schedule was like really, really truncated as well. And ended up just kind of happening, you know, with it, you know, we premiered at Sundance then the next year we premiered at South by and it was just like a really, really quick turnaround, but it was, it was really fun. Yeah. That's that. I mean, that's awesome. And, and just to clarify is the short is available on Hulu. Yes. The short's available on Hulu. It's actually available for free on YouTube. If you just Uh search appendage Hulu or appendage short film, it'll, it'll come on up. I love the bite size, the Hulu bite size Halloween, because it's such a great way for people, for filmmakers to sort of get their, get some experience with high production value. I mean, it's a very like short timeline that you have to shoot that short, but it is a proof of concept. There's a couple of others that have, you know, done the festival circuit as well. I know the unicorn, which they're. Yeah, that one was really fun. Was that the same cohort? Yes. Same, same year as us or like same season. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a also, I think it's just a great thing for our listeners to, because we have a lot of horror listeners and it's a great place to see how certain stories are getting their starts and how they can sort of evolve from there. And speaking of evolving, this is a segue that I'm really trying to make work. Let's talk about the thing that's evolving through the bodies of this <laughs> film and the practical effects and sort of the approach that you took around that and the VFX as an editor, because that is something that, unlike Yara, who's way more familiar with this stuff, to me is a complete like black box. And I'm incredibly intimidated by all of yeah, that. Definitely. And I, just to add to that, I, I, I kind of want to, you know, ask why and how much you wanted to stay in practical and how much you had to rely on VFX and kind of like what kind of, not showcase, but like define that balance. 
For sure. For sure. You know, on the short, it was like a real combination of the two in like a bigger way where, so we had the creature for both the short and the feature was created by Amber Marie and, and her partner, Jim Ojula helped out and they like created like a full blown creature. I should have brought it. It's in the other room. Um, or so we have like the little version. Yeah. You just have to sort of put it right behind your zoom window. So you can put <laughs> I know. I've been doing that. And then we like, recently reorganized our house and now she's like on our bookshelf uh, <laughs> just like right at the entrance of the house that, feels, so that also see. feels right that feels like yeah. very in the in interior design flow it right yeah it's very like modern you know <laughs> but i think you know anna is just like a huge fan of practical effects and it just like always feels better when it's like real and it's also it's just like you can do it all there. Like with CG, there's just, oh, we just figure it out later kind of thing. And it's just really cool when it's actually the creatures on set. It's just, it gives like a different life to the film. The crew like freak out. You can kind of see how it's all going to feel, especially as you're editing. You don't have to like edit with a tennis ball in one shot, which, you know, it just, it just, you know, we were really lucky to have all of that stuff crafted beforehand. Um, which was really cool. And so in the short film, like the eyes of the creature were visual effects, but everything else was real. And then in the feature, the whole thing is real. There are some like rods and things holding it up that we had to erase digitally. But for the most part, it's all practical, which was really cool. And and it also talks like there was this crazy mechanism that the puppeteers created where there was a microphone. And if you spoke into the microphone, the creature's mouth would move to match what you were saying. That's which so was rad. really, really sick. I guess it was like a new technology that that hadn't been used or only a few times. And so it was it was really cool that they were able to do that. And and for context for our, our listeners, and and I don't think this is spoiling, and if it is, we can take it out. But this creature is growing on the main character's body. It and it is sort of this metaphor for anxiety and and it grows and she's also you know in fashion school she's very chic she's very cool but then she has this like nasty thing that has its own story and baggage tied to it growing out of her which to me was like very satisfying and I felt very seen as a woman (laughs) you know walking around this world and like feeling like you know things that are out of my control and things that are out of my control happening to my body and and the thing about this monster is like it is it's hard to look at because he's so or so creepy and so like and and i think that grotesque that grotesqueness it, it, the practical elements of it like that comes across in the performance and i think i'm having that visceral reaction because i'm feeling it like i'm feeling it translate onto the camera there's something about like a gooey creature you know that you just can't you don't feel it the same way when it's vfx like it just doesn't feel as real but when when you know there's just something about real texture that's slimy and disgusting that you can like feel i think it creates like an awesome visceral reaction and also for like even the talent like the actress playing with it, like she can also feel the slime and and everything. And it just like, it really brings it all together. But yeah, I think there's something really special about watching that. It brought me the same feeling of like the thing, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anna loves that movie. And that was definitely a huge reference. I have a a follow-up. Like I'm thinking, you know, what would the difference be between, you know, editing something that's really heavy effects written, you know, as an editor? Like, do you see a difference in performance or in, you know, your work when it's practical, when it's already there in camera? 
I, performance is hard to say, but I do think that like, for me, it's just, it's always fun to be able to edit with everything that's there. You know, like, you know, it's like editing a scene where you only have coverage of one actor, but you don't have coverage of the other actor. Like, it's really hard to cut the scene because, you know, it's just like this dance that you're trying to do. But if, if you don't have the other shot, it's like, how do you even know where to cut or how to cut? And, and so that it's just nice to be able to have everything there. I don't really know how movies do it, like A Quiet Place or things like that, where like half the stuff is VFX. And like, I just don't know how they would do it. I've never worked on anything like that. You know, it'd be an interesting challenge for sure. But it's just nice when you just have have it all there. Definitely. Yeah. Let's talk about your process as an editor. So you're getting the footage and where do you go from there? Yeah, for sure. So like like technical aspect or like... Well, can I preface this question with like, did you have a DIT? Like what was your crew size for this post-production process? Like how much support did you totally. have? Or was it just you kind of like running with SD cards from place to place? It was pretty, it was not that far from that. We were shooting in North Carolina and we didn't have a DIT. So I was a DIT. We had a camera utility who ended up like driving. Sometimes he would drive over SD cards to where I was editing in this little like co-working space or he would, or I would go pick them up. And then I would, I was transcoding stuff. Our our DP created like a special LUT beforehand. So we were putting like a cool fancy LUT on everything. And then I was sending the dailies through Frame.io to Los Angeles where my assistant was, Jonathan. And he was syncing and like organizing. We did it all in Premiere Production. So he was like doing all the stuff, making it, you know, logging, syncing, all that stuff. And then by the next day, if not sooner, I was able to just go into the production file and everything was ready to go if that makes sense. But we basically used like Frame.io as like our daily server. And then we used Lucidlink as our, as our server for the Premiere Productions file. Can you elaborate on, on Lucidlink a little bit? Because... Yeah. I mean, you know, I've only used it in this capacity, but it's basically like a, a server. It's really cheap. It's like $20 a month. And you can just, you know, I, I think it's $20 depending on how much space you're using. But for like a Premiere Productions file, it's never going to be more than like, 200 megabytes and you just basically have the the premiere productions folder on that on that server and it looks like if you're on a mac it just looks like a finder window sort of situation and it's just a shared folder between you and whoever else you want to sign up for it and so it was just really helpful to just have the premiere file on there and it works like really fast so you just had everything in the cloud for the most part everything was in the cloud yeah and then and then we were downloading media locally like the transcodes and stuff like that. But, you know, through Frame.io, it was really fast. And I I made sure that where I was editing from had like really good internet. And so you can upload really quickly and and all that fun stuff. And you shot on... It was crazy. You shot on Airy? Yeah, we shot on the Alexa Mini. Okay. And how was kind of... Was it just straight ProRes or did you do Airy Raw? Like, did you have to... you know, I I was just talking to someone about this. I've never actually worked with Airy Raw. I don't um, think anybody has. Just did. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this myth, urban legend. Yeah, urban legend. Have you heard about the Airy Raw? The file size is apparently ridiculous. But uh, yeah, we were just doing ProRes four by fours, shooting in log, and then and then what's really nice with the new we we cut on the the a MacBook M one is on like, and I was using a little OWC or not a little an OWC RAID drive. 
an SSD one is that the transcodes were the same size as the proxies, or sorry, as the as the raw. So we shot in 3.2K, our transcodes were also in 3.2K. So it just like made everything a lot easier if we were going to do temp VFX or anything like that, like everything was the same size. So it just like made, I was also the online editor for the movie. And so like onlining the movie was just like really easy because everything was the same size. And so, you know, if you can do that, you know, with technology these days, I, I think that's like an awesome kind of I, workflow thing. I have a question as the non-tech person in this conversation. <laughs> what is an online editor? Yeah, could you like uh, offline versus online? For sure, for sure. So offline is when you're editing with the transcodes, the proxies, the smaller files that are much easier for your computer to run on, you know, exports go faster, all these things. So it's always nice to work with transcodes and the pro- or slash proxies. I don't know if there's a difference between the word transcodes and proxies, if they mean the same thing. I always assume that they have. And then an online editor is the editor who you basically convert all of the proxies to to the raw footage. So you, you know, if you're in Premiere, you just make offline and then relink it back to the original footage. And that process is a bit more precarious, you know, things run slower. At that point, ideally, your picture locks, you're not actually making any edit changes. And if you are, they're very minor. But usually the online editor is placing the final VFX, placing the final sound files, making all sorts of exports. If you have a distributor or things Mm -hmm. like that, you know, you're kind of dealing with that or sending things off to color, things like that. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's, in my experience, that's, that's what it's been. Because you had that truncated timeline of seven weeks to get to lock were you editing in or doing this sort of like ingesting work in real time so you could then hit the ground running as soon as you wrapped or did you start editing while you were still shooting oh yeah we were cutting while we were still shooting so like i was you know you know we're on like day 15 you know the 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 utility drops off the sd card i'm shipping it over to l or i'm like uploading it to la you know i'm like checking the time making sure you know, it's like Dunkirk, you know, I'm like making sure <laughs> yeah. that it's all gonna that it's yeah. all gonna upload. And then the second he's done, he sends me a message saying, Hey, everything syncs, like you're ready to go, and then I'll jump into that scene. And then I was trying to cut scenes like as as they were coming in, and then Anna would come in to the edit room. And we were we were we shot the movie in a pretty small town in North Carolina. So then she would stop by after set sometimes and watch the scenes that I had cut, and then you know, we'd go back and forth a little bit, and then and then we would just move on to the next day usually. It's so yeah, fascinating it was, it was that like back in the day you had to wait for film, wait for cuts, like when you watch yeah. dailies, then you, you know, you cut it months later and now you, you're, you're caught up to camera for the most part, you know, the scene's done, yeah, it's the wild. editor goes and sees it like after, you know, the day instead of dailies, which is really cool. I think it's really fun. It's really fun. And it helps. I mean, this actually never ended up happening, but I've heard on films like, you know, you're like, oh, you know, it'd be great if we got this insert shot for this scene. And so then the camera crew will go back and get an insert or something like that, which can be helpful. On Appendage, though, they, I mean, we, they were moving so fast and they were really getting everything I think that we needed as well. So that didn't have to happen. Definitely. That's such what a were quick some of, turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, it was crazy. With that, what was like one of the biggest barriers that you found or or puzzles that you had to solve in post when it came to the story? Because, you know, you are a For writer sure. and I we talk a lot on the, the podcast about how the editor, it like fires the director and, and of course you would never fire 
in this case, <laughs> but how you advocate for the audience as a storyteller. And it's very much writing the movie for a third time. Yeah, totally. I think like writing and editing, there's so many, there's so much overlap. It's, it's wild. So I think, you know, there's definitely a lot to glean from, from either of those, if you're experienced in either of those. But yeah, I think the biggest challenge was the mom character, like balancing her, her like meanness, I guess, towards, towards the lead. And like, in the script, I think it was a lot more nuanced and like true to life in terms of like, maybe she didn't seem as mean in the script, but you kind of like got it. And it was like, you know, I think when we, when we cut the movie together, people didn't understand why her and her mom didn't get along. And we wanted to create this feeling of like, Oh, her mom is not necessarily being helpful towards her and it's making her anxiety worse. And so there was a lot of balance, like in the first scene of the movie, the cold open, you know, Hadley or Hannah, the lead character is having dinner with her parents and we did a lot of reworking to that and also some ADR on the mom character to just balance how mean she should be. And I think that was the that was like the the most delicate sort of balance throughout the film. And also like she calls her mom on the phone and there were some opportunities there to ADR and things like that. But that that was the biggest puzzle I think we ran into. And like testing, you know, it's interesting to like test the movie and people give you feedback like I don't understand you know, I, I like, I love the movie, but don't understand her relationship with her mom. And then it's like, okay, how do we, how do we solve that? It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but you can really do a lot in the edit, you know, you really can. And I think I learned a lot about that through making this. Nailing the anxieties of a mother daughter relationship is probably one of the most difficult things you can do. Period. Yeah. Spe- sure. By bringing it to film and being able to show it. I think that's, uh, yeah, it makes sense that that would be something that you'd have to, a puzzle that you'd have to solve. Yeah, exactly. Or it's like, you know, we tested it with like different age groups and like certain age groups really got it. And then other like older generations, like parents were like, I don't understand. Like she's such a good mom. And so it was like, (laughs) you know, balancing that so that it works for most people, I think was also was, was, was a challenge. How did you strike that? I mean, that specific balance, because uh, you don't want to over broadcast for to, to speak to the older audience, especially if it's ringing true to a younger audience. How did you find that balance? I think, I think at the end of the day, we wanted to lean towards the younger audience and be like, this is a movie for Gen Z and, and people who are growing up with a lot of anxiety or growing up with, you know, just being comfortable talking about anxiety in general. Like I think sometimes older generations like kind of deny that it even exists or it doesn't exist for them. But so I think we, we sort of were like, let's just favor the, the the Gen Z audience. Yeah, I feel like you're you're making a movie for Gen Z folks instead of you know the the boomer generation. Anyway, yeah, 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 they're like oh horror. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yara, did you want to dig into some more questions about tools? Yeah. So I I get the more I kind of hear you talking about the the workflow and the process for this and how fast it was, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by like all the things you kind of like the corners you cut, but the still kind of the work you put into, you know, making things accessible and efficient and organized. And so frame kind of came, came, came into the conversation and I'd love for you to kind of chat more about that. But for me, it's like, what was your, my biggest question is what was your kind of like toolkit and how was it organized? Were you stuck in, you know, Adobe creative cloud for the entire time? Like what did you use and how did that help you in the workflow? But then also on the other hand, you mentioned 
you sh- you edit it on a MacBook Pro. Was the whole film on a MacBook Pro? Yeah, so the whole movie was cut and finished on a MacBook Pro, the M1, which is wild. I I had a cheese grater, like one of those big the the big desktop ones, and I sold it for this movie so I could do it on the M1 because I needed to be mobile. And what's crazy is like that M1, my M1 MacBook Pro is the same. It, I would say it's roughly about the same speed as the very ridiculously expensive cheese grater. Like I had it almost maxed out. And so, and this how much do is those like, cost these days? How much is the, the cheese graters? The, no, the M1. Well, actually, I am curious. Oh. Both cost. You know, I was recently on Reddit, and apparently, cheese graters are like worth like nothing now. Yeah. Um, so just to jump which in, is really like, sad. The old Intel ones are probably worth nothing, but you could pay upwards of like fifty thousand for one, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. But this thing is like yeah. you know, maxed out to to the nth degree. But the new ones, they just came out with a new Mac Pro M2 Ultras. And they're, I think, a little more affordable in relatively, you know, relatively to 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 the old one. But they're still kind of like, why does this exist? The studio, the Mac Studio is so great. The MacBook Pro is so great. You don't need as MacBook Pro is so great. You don't need a Mac Pro. Yeah, you don't need the the desktop anymore. It's just it's crazy what you can do. I'd love to get a studio at some point. I actually tried to get a studio for appendage and it was sold out and we couldn't get it in time. But, you know, it, it was cool to have the laptop. So yeah, just to kind of uh-huh. like circle back, you know, you have the hardware yeah. and the software. So like, I guess let's start with software and, and kind of talk to me about that a little bit. Totally. So, so I do everything in the creative cloud for the most part, I think maybe everything on this movie, but yeah, cutting in premiere, I do a lot of my own VFX. I ended up doing a lot of the VFX on the movie after we locked picture. We also had some really great VFX artists come in who use flame and like fancy stuff. But for my shots, I did After Effects and I'm using After Effects constantly while I'm editing on like every movie that I do, I would say. Just like the ability to be able to temp in VFX really easily is just, you know, it's just amazing. So a lot of, a lot of After Effects and Photoshop. But yeah, I think those, that's like the holy trinity, I guess, is After Effects, Photoshop and, and Premiere, you know, and, and using Frame.io to, as like our daily system was, was really helpful. That's incredible. I, I I assumed that like, you know, for VFX heavy things, people would use something a bit more like a node based system for, for, you know, compositing or, but after effects, you know, even though it's like this layer based format, like Photoshop, it's still so functional. And so, you know, there's so much depth to it. Yeah. You can really do a lot. And I know like node, I, I, I should one of these days learn how to use a node based system, but I guess I just haven't taken the leap yet because you can just do so much in After Effects and, and so many you know movies just use it. So I don't know. I think, I mean, probably 80% of the VFX done on the movie was done in, in After Effects. And then we had a, a small portion of it done in, in, I believe it was Flame. But yeah, I mean, After Effects is just, it's just great. You know, you can, you can do so much. Definitely. Definitely. And I guess for and hardware, you can just if you have a problem, you can just Google it. You can just go on YouTube yeah. and someone else has already figured out how to solve the problem. And it's like that's that's why I love Premiere. That's why I switched over to Premiere is that if you have a problem, it's online. You know, when I was AEing for Joe in in college, like, you know, when we were using the older editing systems, if you have a problem, like you're kind of screwed. Yeah. <laughs> when I learned how to edit, I and again, cav heavily caveating that I am not a tech person, I am not an editor, but I don't think I really understood how to direct until I learned how to edit. 
And and there my that was the first year of the pandemic was me taking the footage of a short film that wasn't working and using every single frame to reverse engineer a completely different story with the help of, you know, Charles Hain, who, you know, no film school podcast host. And I would be stuck and YouTube would give me the answers. And it, and, and so I think that like th- the fact that you, a professional editor, is you're able to tap into that resource and me, an unsavvy non-techie <laughs> person can also figure it out. I think that speaks a lot to to choosing that suite and making that choice. Yeah, I think, you know, I was just talking to someone about this. Like, I think for a while, like people made editing software difficult on purpose so that like other people wouldn't know how to use it. And now like the internet has really like empowered you know, all sorts of people to learn about filmmaking and you don't necessarily need to go to film school. You don't need to, you know, take the expensive course or whatever. Like you can just, anyone can kind of do it. And I think Premiere kind of plays into that where it's just so easy to pick up. And and I think everyone should know how to do it. Like directors should know how to edit and should know how to look through things and cutting points. And, you know, all that stuff is, is really important, I think. Definitely. Or like what a timeline is and how it kind of builds, you know, Cause like mm-hmm. for me, it's always been Lego blocks, you know, and I'm seeing like the whole scene, the whole, every, like everything is just blocks of, you know, Legos as my timeline and then I can move it around exactly. and that changes how you perceive a scene for sure. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can do so much when, with, with, with the moving things around editing or, you know, just filmmaking is so flexible and you can just you can make shots from other scenes work in your existing scene you know if you really want to you know i just on another movie you know we we needed an insert shot of a scene for a scene and it was shot during the day but it needed to be at night to try and make it work for this other scene and you just we just threw lumetri on there and just like brought the exposure down and suddenly it was day for night and it looked real and so like stuff like that is just like so magical and, and cool well, let's use this as a moment to pivot to talking about the the building blocks, the Lego blocks of getting to the edit. And that is specifically shooting, shooting for effects. Yaro, we loved reading this article about specifically shooting for VFX, but I think this also extends to a conversation about practical effects and knowing our horror-loving audience. I think a lot of folks are interested in learning how to shoot better or shoot more smart for this type of storytelling. So can you speak a little bit about the article, Yaro? Yeah, so it was this this kind of thought that, you know, when you work within a 3D space, it's it feels like its own thing and you can create whatever you want. But in order to have some semblance of realism or even kind of make sure your composite is is working is believable and all your 3D elements in your live action plate are believable, you have to implement some of those kind of cinematography techniques. This includes bokeh, back focusing, you know, oh my God, what else was in there? I should have had it pulled up. Anyways, Alex, could you kind of share how you brought or what you bring to your VFX from kind of the cinematography world. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, I love the article and everything that that you mentioned in there in terms of focus and in terms of like you're talking about dolly zooms and just understanding depth of field and understanding shutter speed. All that stuff is incredibly important, I think, for, you know, as, you know, in terms of editing, in terms of cinematography, visual effects, you know, I think everyone on the crew should should really, you know, could really benefit from from learning about all that stuff. 
you know, in terms of, I was also the VFX supervisor on appendage. And so obviously it's like, you know, really helpful to be able to under, it was a, it was a family affair, but I think like understanding, okay, you know, we have a shot of the creature. Oh, oh, actually I didn't even realize this was sitting right next to me. Uh, This is from the movie. This was was a test mold, I think. Yeah. That's so Yeah. It was on her side, but it's like, okay, we have a shot of the creature and there's like a rod holding it up. We need to get a clean plate for instance, of, of the shot so that we can erase this like rod sticking out of it. And so understanding from a VFX perspective, okay, well, what if the focal plane is changing throughout the shot? So then when you shoot your clean plate, it's not just about a clean plate. For instance, if, if, for those who don't know is, is just like taking if the creature is in the shot with the rod, just like taking it all out. So you just have like the background in the shot and you just press record so you can use that when you're when you're erasing the rod later but if the focal plane is changing throughout the shot or anything like that like making sure you get different things in focus for your clean plate and understanding how the bokeh will change throughout the shot is really important so you can create something that is going to look the same with visual effects you know in after effects there's a lot of different ways you can shift the bokeh and, and things like that or in blender like you were talking about in the article there's a lot of different ways to mimic like real bokeh or chromatic aberration which you also talked about in the article which is like super helpful in terms of like replicating you know just like lens artifacts and things like that to just help blend everything together so just like understanding all of that is just so helpful for for creating recreating really the magic trick of like you know oh there is no rod holding this up it's just it's just the creature <laughs> yeah Definitely. What's your kind of go-to for making something real that you're adding in for like I, a, a VFX I, you, you're adding in? You know, chromatic aberration is definitely huge. I, you know, blurring is really huge. Sharpening, adding noise, actually adding noise is like one of the most helpful things. Ah, so I should have added that into the article. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah to like match the or grain like, or the noise of the, the, the live right. action stuff. Yeah. There's this really great plugin called Neat Video that will like denoise things and then you can add noise back onto it. And it's really helpful if you're like, you know, erasing something from a shot, you like denoise everything and then you add a whole layer of noise onto the whole thing. So it's like a uniform noise. But I feel like noise is, and noise is like a reference <clears throat> to like camera noise. So like not necessarily grain, but like the natural noise that a camera creates it's sort of just about trying to replicate that and then on top of that you can put grain and things like that which is also really helpful for selling a composite but you know that's more of like a color thing but yeah i feel like noise is is huge what's your what's your workflow for adding noise specifically because everybody knows grain you know you either do like a plug-in or you just do like a little overlay but what's like how would you mimic the noise of a live action shot I think, something. you know, there's probably a better way to do it, but usually I'll denoise something with, with neat video and then I'll just put an adjustment layer from After Effects on top of everything and I just click noise and then I, I'll sometimes look at like how the original noise looked on the camera and then I'll try and match it with the new percent, like, you know, if it's like 1% or 2% or 3% noise in After Effects, you just kind of like on and off and, and the layer and see if it's like similar enough to the original, the original noise. But that's, hey. that's basically it. There's probably ways of, of mimicking camera yeah. noise and stuff that I just are beyond my, my skill set. Probably. <laughs> hey, if it works, it works. I, I, I totally get yeah. it. And it kind of touches on our idea of you know, everybody works differently and the outcome's still the same. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I wanted to, Oh, no, go ahead. 
or I was just after reading your article, it reminded me of this 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 Unreal Engine video game that mm. is like getting it. It's like this French game that's about to come out called Unrecord. Unrecord. And have you heard? <sighs> have you heard yeah. about this? I thought that was real. So GG Unrecord. Yeah, is it looks a real. First person shooter game about a, a police officer wearing a body cam, and I legit thought it was like, oh, this is just like a real real life footage looking like a fake video game or something like that, but it's real and it looks and so good. It looks so good. And I think what they do is they add compression. So it looks like, uh, you know, just like shittier video and suddenly like your brain kind of fills in all the spaces of like what it should look like if it was yeah. real. And it, it just looks, just looks real. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah so unrecord, uh, unrecord, unrecord Everybody should take yeah. a look at the, the YouTube trailer for that. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Also, motion blur is a big one too. People mm-hmm. tend to overdo motion blur, but I think that's a that's another good one to a dash to of motion excel. blur. Yeah, just a little sprinkle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, man. cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for geeking out with us about this. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about your process or about working on appendage specifically? I think that was it. You know, it's really fun to work with your friends. And, you know, I've known Anna for, you know, we've been together for like eight years now. I went to high school with our cinematographer, Powell. Michelle, we've known for a long time. Anna and Powell went to school with her. Like, it's just, you know, if you can work with your friends, that's the best feeling. It doesn't feel like you're working. And, you know, you grow together and and you trust each other. And and that's just my favorite. So I just feel really lucky that we got to do that on Appendage. Yeah, I feel like that's that's exactly how you make movies is you have a community. It's all friendships. Like I went to see a play the other day and it's like half the audience were faces I recognized from TV. And I'm like, oh, these oh, are all wow. friends. These are all friends and they're they're all family. They all make things together. And you just gotta build your community. And there's really no other way to do it besides doing that. Build a community, make friends, keep pushing, keep doing your thing. Support each other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's the best, you know, and it's just good. This industry gets really hard, and it's just good to have people around you that support you and and cheer you on, and you know, you can commiserate together, which is really nice, especially during these crazy times when everyone is out of work and things like that. It's it's really nice to just have a community to at least sulk with. <laughs> yeah, I, and similar to what we were saying about practical effects coming across differently on screen i i do feel like when i watch a movie where i could can tell that people were working together and there's like this community feel behind it like i that comes across on on the screen as well oh awesome i'm glad (laughs) that's very sweet (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us alex and let us know where we can find your work is do instagram or yeah my instagram is is probably just alex j fam but you can just i'm sure google it and or i don't know if there's like a link that you post on on these things but yeah i got an instagram website that's that's me on the internet you know (laughs) and for our listeners you can watch the appendage short now on hulu and Tune in to the film releasing this October. Congratulations. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a great one. Oh, thanks, guys. This was so great. <laughs>